Hello there and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tagal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Mark Bamforth, who's entrepreneur, mentor, and investor in life sciences. Assuming you've listened to the first part of Mark's two-part episodes, this is the second part. So hopefully by the end of the first part of Mark's journey, you are chomping at the bit to hear where that journey continued. And that's what we are bringing to your ears today. And in the second part, we are going to, Mark and I cover lots of, uh, lots of ground, which includes uh, the third of his three exits, which uh, was a kind of unsolicited offer that led to the sale of Aranta Bio to Oresi Farm last year, which happened really, really quickly. And Mark goes into quite a lot of detail talking about that deal. We also get into Mark's clear ability to spot trends and where the sector is going and, and how sometimes Mark thinks about that and goes against kind of conventional wisdom, some real pearls of wisdom for you to take away. For any of you that are um, either looking for investment or on the investor side, listen up how Mark thinks about his investments, both in early stage and late stage companies as an investor and mentor. Given what's happening in the market at the minute, I was keen to get his insights on uh, the current biotech kind of slowdown and what that might mean for the contract services and outsourcing space. And given Mark's incredible success, I also try to unlock some of his leadership lessons from his time, both at Genzyme and the three businesses that he has founded and exited. It really is a, an excellent conclusion to uh, this, um, you know, once, <laughs> I say once in a lifetime, maybe not once in a lifetime, but this first two-part um, episode uh, that we've ever done. And for background, Mark founded and built and then sold three CMOs over a 12-year period. Gallus Biopharma was focused on monoclonal antibodies. Brahma Bio produced viral vectors for gene therapy. And Aranta Bio produced microbiome, plasmid, and mRNA vaccines. In total, over 1,200 jobs were created and over 100 client clinical trial projects were enabled. Prior to this, Mark previously spent 22 years at Genzyme, latterly running the 12 site global manufacturing operation and pharmaceutical CMO business. He began his career as a petroleum engineer with Brit Oil, then as a chemical engineer with Whitbread. He serves on the boards of Continuous Pharma, uh, Numagen, Endobiotics, Inceptor Bio, and Entrepreneurial Scotland. He has a BS in chemical engineering from Strathclyde University and an MBA from Henley Management College. And thank you to you, yes, for listening. As always, uh, we really appreciate the time you take to tune in to Molecule to Market. But we'd also appreciate if you could give us a kind rating on your app store. Make sure you press that subscribe button wherever you're listening to this podcast and go one better and share today's episode with someone in the industry. Thanks to my team and for all of your support in helping us uh, produce today's podcast. And if you haven't picked up a copy of my book, The Floundering Founder, then please 
do so right now. And if you do like it, I would really appreciate a nice review on Amazon. Final thing, enjoy today's show. So, Aranda, you managed to to get off the ground very, very quickly. So, um, talk us through the speed of that journey. And as you mentioned at the start, it was purchased by Resi Farm last year. And that, in my mind, seemed to happen very quickly because I was actually living in Massachusetts while this business was being set up. And by the time almost it was kind of ready to go to market, it was it was being sold. So love to hear the the story of, of how that kind of third one came about. Yeah, well, Aranta was focused on the microbiome. So that's growing bacteria um, and keeping them alive and then uh, formulating them and, and finishing them in a way that can be delivered uh, generally into the gut, but sometimes onto the skin or, or other places. Um, so that's an, an area I've been interested in for, for a number of years. Um, a former colleague had said to me back in, in 2016 when I was setting up Brammer, hey, you should look, look at the microbiome and set up a good man's full with uh, viral vectors. Um, I don't have time for that. But it, it stuck in my mind. I knew there were supply challenges there. And so when uh, when Brammer sold, um, I started a conversation with uh, the scientific leader, uh, Dr. Alan Cowley, of a small business, uh, interestingly also based in Northern Florida. And, um, and I came to appreciate that he had a lot of know-how expertise, uh, but he really hadn't built much uh, in terms of there being a lot of infrastructure or a large organization that was a small organization. Um, but I, I did I did market research on that space. I approached the same investors I'd worked with at Brammer. They did their own market research and basically we concluded, yeah, let's let's get this going. Um, and so that's what we did. Because we weren't buying an existing business with a lot of infrastructure, we knew we were going to have to build a lot of the uh, infrastructure ourselves. And so we raised more money than I'd raised in the previous two businesses uh, to fund that and um, got it off the ground, as we said, quite quickly. <clears throat> and then, you know, we're building that business, building out in Florida for early stage. We'd found a site in Massachusetts that we were building out for commercial supply. Um, and then, of course, COVID happened. So we had to continue our work whilst dealing with uh, those restrictions. Um, the microbiome space, if anyone spends time looking at it, has gone through various ups and downs. Um, the way I would summarize it is, it's very clear that the microbiome is an important area. Um, there are some product-related challenges. So can you um, treat a disease with just a handful of bacteria um, that have been isolated uh, and then grown in fermenters, or some companies are using full-spectrum donor donor material uh, in order to deliver potentially thousands of bacteria. Um, so there's still there's still clinical proof needed to show the full potential of this space, um, and what we experienced with COVID happening with the world turned upside down was that the the clients that we were working with and the clients we had in our pipeline that about half of them 
were looking for funding. And, and it wasn't clear they were going to get funding. And of course, if they didn't get funding, they couldn't spend money with us. And so we were about a year, year and a half into that business. And we saw we're going to end up with more capacity than is going to be used for the microbiome in the short term. Uh, is there something else that, that we could do? So we're not giving up in the microbiome, but it's just something additive. And we decided, um, working with, uh, the president of the business, uh, Dave Stevens, who, who had some prior experience with messenger RNA, uh, we decided, um, to implement that, not to try to supply for COVID, you know, hundreds of millions of doses, but to supply for oncology uses. Now that there was really clear proof of concept around the use of mRNA. And so we got our board's approval to invest, um, and build out what was really a, a unique offering, which was to be able to do the entire process within one building. Whereas the market at that point, the supply side was very fragmented with companies having to go to three or four different locations and often three or four different companies in order to get supply of the product. Um, and sure enough, when we announced that we started to get a lot of interest and attention. And we're starting to build a client base, uh, to, to supply mRNA vaccines to whilst continuing to slowly, more slowly than we wanted, grow the microbiome business. And soon after that, I'm not going to call it a pivot, but the extension into that space, uh, you know, it, it seemed to come out the blue that the business was, was purchased by Resi Farm. Conscious that was a very recent deal. So <laughs> I'm sure you can't go into the detail, but I suppose my question around that, my assumption would be the acquisition or the sale from your perspective happened probably quicker than what you may have expected or that you'd originally planned for. Is that a fair assumption? It certainly is. So we had an unsolicited bid. Uh, we didn't run a process. Um, as I described for both Gallus and Brammer, um, we didn't have a board decision. Let's go and see if we can sell this business. We had an unsolicited bid from Resi Farm, who um, had been a, a public company and they were taken private by a large private equity company, EQT. And uh, they basically said, look, we, we want to be in the US and we want to be in your space. So we're interested in, in acquiring the business. And my first reaction was to say, well, we're not for sale. We probably have another <laughs> two years to really grow this business to where we think it can get to. And they said, well, let, let us make you a proposal. So they put something on the table and then the board decided, okay, we're going to take this seriously and let's see if this, if this works out. Uh, and obviously it did. And we ended up transacting in April, as I said, of uh, 2022. And I've been uh, almost writing all my questions uh, to brother and stop at every juncture uh, to try and kind of combine a few questions uh, towards the back end of the journey. If you, if you reflect back, Mark, on founding and growing and exiting three different businesses, I'm sure none of them would, uh, uh, the easy question was, you know, was one harder than the other type thing. That's not the that's not the route that I want to go down. I'm just interested to know you almost they all they all had slightly different startups, right? You know, the first one was a carve out effectively. The second one was almost a combination of an existing facility and then you know, you ended up purchasing 
another facility and then the third one was obviously a start from scratch so the, the the blueprint if you like or the playbook is not be identical across all of them if you reflect back was was one was one more problematic than the other or you know or the, the flip question of that is if you had to do one again now <laughs> which which is kind of the slightly easier path to go now well so it may not be so clear, but the, the commonality with them is that they all started with a platform. <clears throat> the difference was the stage of maturity of the platform. So Gallus was a mature platform with a com commercial site licensed around the world. What we had to add to that business was the development capability because it didn't exist. Whereas with Brammer, we started with a really strong development capability, but there was no commercial capability. So we had to add that. And then Aranta, we started with a less mature development capability um, compared to Brammer. And so we had to strengthen the development capability and really build that team out and the facility and add the commercial ready uh, capacity to it. So. So the commonality is they all started with a platform, but at different stages of maturity. It's interesting, yeah. And you seem to have a knack for spotting where the market is going, albeit to your point there around the maturity of, of the capability. But if you look at, you know, the, I suppose the mammalian technology that you had in Gallus and then into viral vectors and then to mRNA in your most recent, how do you think about where the market is going and what the next big thing is going to be and that will lead to i'm very curious to know what's mark doing now but i think you know if people might look at you and be like you do have you seem to have an ability to pick the right horse so to speak so it'd be brilliant to get into your mind of like what that process looks like and is it a combination of gut is it market research is it all of the above so anything you can share on that would be would be great yeah, and you know, p part of it is um, being in the industry, as you said, for for three decades. Um, but you also have to sometimes go against conventional wisdom. It's, so there's a bit of luck involved as well. Somebody on LinkedIn sent me a message and said, "Could you tell me what the next big area is?" I'm like, R "Really? You know what? <laughs> like you just want the answer because you want to go and invest in it or do what?" But I'll tell you what I'm interested in now. And again, part part of this is timing, is you know, seeing a need, seeing an opportunity, seeing problems in supply. If you go into the areas that you know are already mature, it's hard to be uh, disruptive or effective. We well, may be effective, but it's hard to grow quickly uh, in those areas. You're listening to Molecule to Market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. So Mark, given all the success that you've you've had and the, the, the businesses that you've sold, uh, I suppose it begs the question, uh, you know, if you're ready to hang up your, your boots, so to speak, and maybe go and play golf or <laughs> retire. However, when I looked at your LinkedIn profile, it looks like you have uh, you know, no plans to slow down. So it would be great to hear about what you're up to now and, and some of the roles that, that you're involved with, both as a mentor uh, and on the board as well. 
Yes, certainly. You know, despite being Scottish, I wasn't given any uh, any genes or, or ability in that department, unfortunately. <laughs> so, uh, so, so I don't I don't golf. But at the end of the day, you have to kind of examine yourself and say, what? Why do you do what you do? And for for me, that is, I, I feel that you know, there's still a difference I can make. I can still help other companies be successful, and uh, try to share my experiences with them. And see see where that can help them on their journeys. And there's a lot of work to do still, right? I mean, focused on healthcare and life sciences, it, it's an amazing place to spend your career. But of course, the, the work's never done. There there are uh, more diseases and more challenges that the world faces. So, you know, I I do have a, a project in the background I've been working on over the last uh, nine months or so which is looking at antimicrobial resistance. Uh, the WHO says by 2050, more people will die from this than are dying from cancer. And if you think about the resources going into cancer, not that I'd want any of those to stop, but that, that really says, you know, there needs to be a high priority. Uh, in fact, I read in the paper yesterday about a new bacterial strain that's emerging that none of the current antibiotics are working on. and this is a really significant issue for the world, for global health, but it's also one that has some real challenges because uh, if a new product is developed, then it's actually not used, it's held in reserve for uh, cases where it's going to be critical. And so, of course, that's the wrong incentive model for capitalist approach to developing products. Therefore, it requires some different thinking from governments. And maybe it also requires some different product approaches, and there are certainly some innovative companies working on new technologies, and in some cases older technologies, but but maybe reapplied to this situation, as well as companies working on on diagnostics, including companies in Scotland that have the potential to make a real difference here. So that's an area of interest for me that I'm working with a small team uh, researching and trying to figure out is an opportunity to support an existing company or potentially invest in uh, helping to establish a new a new uh, company in this this area. That that sounds really exciting, and it's not an area I have a, a huge amount of knowledge. So it's um, it's a really interesting one and quite staggering. Some of the statistics that you mentioned at the start there, Mark, and and in terms of the the various additional roles in the boards that you sit on are you able to talk a little bit about those roles and in and what what typically your position is and how you help those companies in your kind of uh, i suppose a less day-to-day operational uh kind of position yeah so i spend uh most of my time i spend with about half a dozen companies uh that i've invested in uh both financially but also invest in time and uh, and really trying to be in a position to to mentor the CEO and uh, support the company uh, in its growth. Several of those companies are in Scotland. They're primarily life sciences, uh, although not, not all. They're also uh, a mixture of product companies as well as service service companies. Um, so the Scottish companies, uh, Enterobiotics, which is focused on the microbiome with uh, some very innovative technology. Uh, to try to tackle some critical diseases in that space. A company called Numogen, based in St. Andrews, which is developing a panviral treatment, which uh, obviously we're all very sens- sensitized to 
the importance of, of being able to tackle viruses that, that occur. And so that's in clinical trials just now. A couple of other companies, Flowtech, that does uh, delivery of medicines to people, which obviously through, through the COVID lockdown was incredibly important, but on a go-forward basis, I think is still you know, valuable for society. And, and a, non, a non-life science company called Celtic Renewables, led by a person, Mark Simmers, who was part of Entrepreneurial Scotland, in terms of learning uh, before he took on that role and continues to be a part of it in terms of the board. So they have built a plant near Grangemouth and this is a, a sustainable way of manufacturing certain chemicals that are in, in common usage uh, using fermentation of byproducts from distilleries and, and other, other manufacturing and using bacteria to break, break these down and make acetone, butanol and ethanol and then a couple of companies in the US, one that's a cell therapy company, Inceptor Bio Products Company, and one that's a technology platform called Continuous Pharma uh, for continuous manufacturing, which uh, again, we think has got an important application in the uh, security of supply uh, within the US and potentially other countries in the world. So those are the prime ones that I'm spending time with. And uh, as I said, it's, it's really it's a privilege and a pleasure to be able to, to, to mentor and be involved. And then my son also has two businesses that he started, and I've been able to um, work with him and, and helping him as he's growing those. And I was 12 employees, um, and he's putting in place a lot of uh, great practices um, that I'm, I'm able to share some experiences with him. That's really a privilege being able to do that. That's lovely to hear. I mean, both in terms of the smaller businesses and the, the breadth of businesses that you're supporting, but obviously the, the, the family connection there, I'm sure there's something in the DNA <laughs> for your uh, son to be, uh, you know, doing his own own venture. And I have to ask, you know, obviously one of the things we talked about earlier on in the interview was, I suppose, some of the challenges you had in getting investment when you first started in You've almost gone full circle, Mark, where you are the, you've become the investor, <laughs> if that makes sense. So I'm just, I'm sure we could spend an entire hour just talking about investment and how you think about investment. So when it comes to making investments into businesses, I suppose, what are the one or two critical decisions that it comes down to for you that just have to, it just has to, you know, they have to tick those these two boxes, uh, you know, that, that for you personally, I'm sure it depends on the nature of the investment, but it's just fascinating given your journey to get that, that type of insight. Yeah. Well, for me, I'm interested in, first of all, a, a company that has a focus that's disruptive, that's going to do something meaningful. Uh, if it was simply a company saying we can make a me too product. I mean, we can make it a little bit cheaper or faster or whatever, then that, that's really not interesting. So the, the purpose of the company is important. Uh, and then the people, right? If you don't feel a trust in the people, uh, especially the CEO, but, but the leadership team, um, then, then that's, that's a pretty big uh, warning sign not to invest. So, you know, there's got to be that fundamental uh, belief that, that the person who's leading the company doesn't necessarily have all the answers, but, but they're going to find the answers and they've got the right energy and passion about what they're doing. 
Uh, so those are really the two key things. And the level of detail depends on the stage of the company uh, and also the level of investment. You know, if it's a very early stage company or a spin out, then there's simply less information, right? They may have a couple of patents, they may have uh, some proof of concept, but they probably don't have a tremendous amount of, of data. Um, and frankly, that's part of the attraction. If, if I or through my network can help them to gain those insights, then that that's really something of interest versus a later stage company. And th those tend to be fewer because the monies they're looking for are larger and therefore, you know, I have to be more, more selective. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's my, my personal approach to it. Well, I appreciate you sharing that w with us and our, and our listening, you know, as we kind of stand here at the, the start of a new year, um, you know, reflecting back on 2022 and a slowdown in the biotech market. And I suppose you have quite an objective vantage point now where you're not necessarily in the day to day like you were earlier last year. What are your thoughts on, I suppose, the immediate and long-term impact on, I suppose, the, the contract services space of, of the current biotech slowdown? You know, no, we don't know how that's going to continue into 2023, but we'd love your thoughts on whether or not that's going to lead to more opportunities for companies that are, you know, vendors and suppliers in the space, or do companies need to be more mindful and, and tighten their belts? And uh, are, are we heading to a slightly rockier phase uh, after a, a few years of booming? Yeah, there's no question that it's a tough uh, funding environment just now for companies. Venture capitalists are being very discerning, often reserving funds for their existing businesses to make sure they can keep keep them going. And some of them being very reluctant to to look at new businesses and certainly new early businesses. They, they want things that are in the clinic and there's somewhat risk reduced. So it's definitely a challenging environment just now. That being said, there's actually still a lot of investment money available. Uh, the, the key of course is trying to, trying to open up those, uh, those wallets and get those investments. So, you know, the impact of that is that a lot of the innovation in our industry happens in the small companies. Uh, small companies uh, are typically are very focused. They're focused on one disease or one platform, and they can be very efficient in moving things forward. Most of them outsource their um, process development and their manufacturing for their clinical trials, and that's to service companies, to contract manufacturers. So when there's a tightening of the belt and uh, there are there's less funding coming through into those companies um, and less less startups. And certainly we've seen a lot less public uh, offerings, so IPOs of those companies, which is one of the ways that they, they were bringing in funds. So with the public markets really being very tight, it does have a, a knock-on effect for the demand coming through to contract manufacturers. But large companies also use contract manufacturers. They may have some in-house capability but they, uh, they will outsource when, when it makes sense for them to do so. Those companies continue to have very strong balance sheets and the ability to invest and, and move things forward. So it's definitely a tighter phase just now, but I don't see it as being a critical phase that is going to drive 
a lot of contract manufacturers out of business, for example. But I think that's that's a period that we're going through. And, you know, people last year were saying, well, maybe by the middle of this year, we'll be out of this. Well, you know, now, now in the US, we've got potential debt crisis that could really make things rocky over the next few months, depending on uh, how that gets resolved, when it gets resolved. So I think there's still uncertainty uh, going forward over the next number of uh, months or quarters. Yeah, it's, um, I'm sure our listeners will take some confidence from uh, and optimism from your, your take there. But I mean, it's a similar theme that we've seen from other guests recently. It's kind of a, it is a different environment, but it's not all bad. And there certainly are some, some green shoots. And Mark, we're coming towards suppose, the, the back end of, of the interview. I'm, I'm sure I could ask you questions all day, but one area I wanted to explore, I suppose, to finish off with uh, was around leadership, actually. And if we, if I look at the experience that you've had as a leader, both in your kind of first couple of decades at Genzyme and then obviously running businesses for the last uh, 15 years or so, um, you know, as you reflect back on your time and the growth you've experienced as a leader of a business, what are the kind of key uh, pieces of advice that you've got for other leaders or people developing careers in the you know outsourcing space? Uh, you know, appreciate you could <laughs> you could write a book on it, um, but a couple of I suppose highlights from your perspective or key things that you think about when going into a, a new venture or even assessing an investment from a leadership perspective um just things that are, are really critical that you see yeah so i as you said i spent over 20 years with genzyme and really it, w- it was pretty amazing to be with a company that grew from a, a few hundred to about twelve thousand people and i was able to grow with it through that period and gain a lot of different experiences. But pretty early on, I realized that I wanted to manage people. I, I enjoyed doing that. Uh, I enjoyed, you know, goal setting and driving performance and celebrating with the teams. And, and that, that for me was really enjoyable part. So I think for leaders, you know, the most important thing is to, to try to have an understanding of yourself and what is it? You're like, what, what are you good at? Um, you can learn things. In fact, it's crucial to learn learn things. But if you really understand your own nature early on, th- there are some people who don't want to manage people, for example, but they are technically expert and, and they gain incredible experiences over, over years and decades that makes them invaluable to a company. Um, so you can have senior people who, who aren't great at managing people but, but they're, they're great because of their expertise and really companies rely on them for that. So I think probably the most important thing is trying to get an understanding of yourself. And I'm sure many people have done, you know, Myers-Briggs, which I, I believe is not particularly involved just now. Um, but you know, there are other assessment tools like that of trying to get this true sense of who you are and what you enjoy doing. And then gain experience and for me I was able to spend a lot of time with one company and gain a lot of experience that then put me in a position to go off and and do things myself I'm frankly in awe of some of the people in their 20s who go and set up companies I wouldn't have had the courage to do that then and 
the, the fact that the best of these people acknowledge what they don't know and they're hungry for support and hungry for input and, and take that input and think about it and apply it to their situation uh, and learn and improve. And again, I, I'm, I'm in awe of people who do, do that early in their careers. I was almost 50 when I started my own first business. So I think, you know, people find their own pathway, but for me, that's part of it is trying to get a good understanding of who, who you are yourself and what motivates you and then pursue the things that you're passionate about and that you enjoy doing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I was I had to go on mute when you you mentioned you know not loving managing people. It's not been my favourite pastime <laughs> from any stretch of the imagination. I think quite early on, I discovered that what I was good at and what I wasn't good at, or where I wasn't passionate about. So I think some fantastic lessons for our listeners to take away, and and that brings us to the end of our conversation today, Mark. I have to say, you know, you are. Um, someone that I personally look up to. I think you're a genuine inspiration in the sector and I'm really grateful for the time that you've given to to come on the podcast and share your story in, in such depth. I'm, I'm hoping our, our listeners will take away lots of insights and lessons and anecdotes from from your sharing your experience. And yeah, thank you. Thank you for so much for being a guest on, on Molecule to Market. Well, well, thank you, Raman, and, and you, you're a great example of somebody who's had the courage to go and build their own business. So I, I really appreciate what you've done and the impact that you're making. And uh, and thank you for the opportunity to speak with you on this podcast. Thanks, Mark. Hi again. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon wherever you like to listen and do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically and please get in touch via our website at molecule to market pod or via linkedin or twitter we love to hear from you so if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on molecule to market then please let us know we'll see you very soon listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.